morning like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it continue to edify us in a way that only you can. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation. Part 5 of American Dating is a counterfeit. Uh, hopefully, you're convinced of this by now. Uh, an awful lot of scripture, a lot of concentrated scripture on this particular topic that I think if you've been humble and honest about the scripture that he's put before us as a congregation, it's undeniable. Uh, the conclusions that we've arrived at. But before we jump in and before we put a closure on this particular series, this past week we began with a, a thought, and it's been consistent throughout the week. We are master justifiers. If we're honest, we are as adept at justifying ungodliness in our lives as just about anything else. We're just really good at it. Remember what Romans 1 says. We, we're really good inventors. And nothing from God's perspective ever has to be invented because what was, what is, and what will be has always been the same. So there's no cause for invention. It's merely discovery. But when we discover things <laughs> that we don't like, we invent things on the side to justify. So if we're honest, we are really adept as you know, species at justifying ungodliness in our lives as just about anything else. And the same arrogance that performs such things is the same one that may be trying to quell the convicting ministry of the Spirit right now. In other words, just don't let that happen in your own soul. Um, He's going to say some things that probably will cause some friction in some of your souls. Uh, and it's by grace that that happens. So the question is, you know, why do we do these things? You know, why, oh why, is our first reaction to truth that is contrary to our own ungodliness to try to find a loophole in the holy doctrines of God? Uh, I mentioned this on Thursday that, you know, you could spend a hundred lifetimes trying to learn all the right things in this book. Just the right things. But it seems to me a lot of people spend an inordinate amount of time trying to find loopholes in this book. In other words, try to find the things that aren't there to justify the things that shouldn't be there in their lives. So why, why is our first reaction to find loopholes? Why do we expend so much energy wrestling with the Holy Spirit's convictions? The answer is in one of the greatest realizations of all, and it's the most, it's among, if not the most puzzling of all realizations for a pastor, I believe. And that is this, that in general, people don't want the truth. I know that sounds bizarre, but that's what I found. And that's what the Bible says. The darkness hates the light. People don't want the truth. If, 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 if people wanted truth, we'd have to fill this entire two and a half acre lot with a building. 
But that's the whole point. They don't want the truth. That's the whole point. Truth is light, but the darkness in them hates the light. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. For fear that his deeds will be exposed, John 3.20. This is why many turn away, leave the faith, or ignore conviction. Why? Because, in general, people don't want the truth. People love the truth when it amplifies something that they like, that they perceive, possibly even in their flesh, as good. People love those kinds of lessons even. But they don't like the lessons that challenge their lifestyle. Up here on the board, John 3.21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's the flip side. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So said Jesus. Now, granted, John 3, 21 and 22 are salvation passages. The basic principle of the darkness in us hating the light applies to all situations, even after salvation, given the presence of our flesh. The point the Spirit's making here is simple, up here on the board, to get us started this morning. Possessing truth, you've got to understand this concept. You can hear truth. A lot of you will hear what's been coming from the pulpit even, but it doesn't sink in because the arrogance in you won't let it. You will reject said truth because it's too big of a conflict in your own life. You'd have to make too many changes maybe to your own lifestyle. So when sinful people hear the truth in their arrogance, they reject it. Grace is given to the humble, resulting in freedom. That's John 8, 32. Remember, you may have the truth. I mean, if everyone in here has a Bible, you have the truth sitting right in front of you. So, I mean, you can own a Bible, right? But does that mean you abide in it? No. There's a lot of people, a lot of so-called Christians that own Bibles, but know nothing about truth. They may have even read the They may even know, you know, certain passages or verses, but they don't possess said truth. They don't have the faith yet because they haven't been humbled. And God gives grace to who? And he's opposed to who? Ah. So if you pick up this book and you read it with arrogance, you're not going to possess the faith that's necessary to make changes in your life. Remember, you may have the truth, but you may not, quote, possess it. There's a difference. One is knowledge, one is faith. The puzzling part is that, as Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I mean, who doesn't want to be free? At face value, you say, of course I want to be free. But you don't. That's the point. Most people really don't want to be free. So the Spirit is asking all of us to consider our lifestyles. Our lifestyles. How we live in. Who we live in for. Not just individual sins we may have committed this past week or something like that. Don't just point out individual sins and say, oh, well, that was a sin. Yep, I get it. That was a sin. I get it. I confess it, God. You know, I get it. I agree with you. It was a sin. No, how about your lifestyle? 
How about your entire lifestyle? How about the things that preoccupy your time? That's what the Spirit's asking us to look at as a congregation. He's asking us to broaden the scope and think about the habits in our lives, including those that involve our relationships, hence this mini-series, including those that involve our relationships. I mean, I would argue that, um, you know, life is about relationships. That's what I've learned. I don't mean to minimize, but let's face it. What do, what do we have with God? We have a relationship, right? I mean, what are the things we value the most in life? Our relationships, I think. So he's asking us to broaden the scope and include those things that, are intrinsic to our relationships. For example, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a person say, and I'm sure, you know, and I'm keeping this genderless, but, geez, you know, I just keep on picking the wrong relationships. Everyone I turn out dating is a jerk. Everyone I date turns out to be such a jerk. I just pick all the jerks. Anybody ever heard that before? Well, frankly speaking, if we're honest, maybe you're the problem. Maybe you're the problem. In other words, maybe if you accepted Holy Scripture's viewpoint on dating and relationships in the first place, in the first place, you'd never again have to wrestle with such things. Imagine that. So I want you to concentrate for a moment on a little thing called deserved suffering. If you continue to disregard the Word of God, refusing to submit to it in humility so that faith results, then you are setting yourself up for pain. This is self-inflicted in the same sense that if you walk into a lion's cage, you can expect to be bitten. Is that the lion's fault? The big old sign, right? You ready? Here it is. It's a big old sign in here. Don't walk into the lion's cage. He's seeking souls to devour. Sound like scripture? But she's so hot. Oh, he's so cute. And you know he's in a band. And you know my, you know how I feel about band members. Probably offending somebody, I don't even know. But what do you, what, this, is what, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if you walk into a lion's cage, you're going to get bit. So, if you, dis, if you continue to disregard the Word of God, refusing to submit to it in humility so that faith results, then you are setting yourself up for pain. This is self-inflicted. If you agree that it's your fault for getting into the lion's cage, then you must concede that it's your fault for dating. Let me say that again. If you agree that it's your fault for getting into the lion's cage, then you must concede that it's your fault for dating. So this has been our sort of segue into this concept, this awful, ungodly concept 
of American dating, which is completely different than biblical courting. Biblical courting always has marriage in view. American dating, eh. Maybe it does, maybe it don't. You know, someday I guess I want to get married, but now I want to have fun. I want to sow my oats. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to screw around. I want to, you know, milk, get to buy the, don't buy the cow. If you, you can test the milk. Is that how it goes? Why, why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? Is that how it goes? All right, thanks. Sorry, I'm not as ungodly as you, obviously. So, you know, why, why you know, why do that? You know, this is, this is what we're getting at. This is called American dating. It's horrible. And it's just, if you just look at the history of it, it's just carnage. It's just carnage. And there's blood, it's, it, the, the carnage begins in junior high school for some of us. So American dating. This is like walking into a hungry lion's cage and expecting the beast to leave you alone. Chances are you will be bitten, if not devoured, eventually. Note, unbelievers aren't the only lions, because we all have flesh. So American dating is really like walking into a lion's cage and expecting not to get bit. What do you expect? And remember, do not just point to the unbelievers and say, oh, you know, it was some satanic. No. Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. It means that our own lustful appetites can, even as believers, consume each other. Which means that even two believers that get together and start having sinful thoughts and sinful actions can devour one another. Which is why the Bible says, flee from your youthful lusts. Don't stick around. Don't test the waters. Run away. Because even two believers in Christ are going to fail eventually if they play this little game. And stop trying to justify yourself with, well, well, he sat over there and I sat over here. And, you know, there was, I, I mean, there was, no, and the Holy Spirit was between us. And there was no sinful thoughts for six hours in the basement alone with some girl who I think is hot, or some guy who I think is hot. Cut it out. Cut it out. During his ministry on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ had a lot to say about personal responsibility. You can't control the person on the other end of the couch, right? But you can control whether or not you get into the lion's cage, right? That's your responsibility, and God holds you responsible. So stop blaming the lion. Stop blaming someone else's flesh. Because it was your flesh who chose to get into the lion's cage. And God sees that and knows the heart. During his ministry, Jesus had an awful lot to say about personal responsibility. In the case of all of you, suffice to say that you are now held responsible, assuming you didn't already know any better about the contents of these lessons. You are now held responsible for your decisions regarding so-called contemporary romance. I don't know what else to call it, this American dating abomination thing. 
you are now held responsible for all your decisions regarding this so-called contemporary romance. You've now been told. You now don't have any more excuses. No relationship is ever designed to distract you from the Lord. Remember that. Go to Luke 12.42. Luke 12.42. So you see, and I hope, I hope you see this by now. I've tried to bring it up a, num a number of times. Luke 12.42. You're... You know, if, if your flesh is battling you right now and, you know, you're thinking about how this might alter your life, your, your, your contention right now is not with Pastor Ed. Your contention is with Holy Scripture. Your contention is with the God of the universe. Your contention is with, with the one who created you, the same one who hopefully saved you, the same one who we call Lord and Master, that one, you are contending, you are wrestling with him at this juncture. So do not sidestep that and say, oh no, I'm wrestling with you, Mr. Bald Guy, because you're a coward. You're trying to sidestep God, the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, and make this about a man and not this. You've seen the scripture. Luke 12, 42 and the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So you are now held responsible, my friends, to the contents of these messages on the veracity of the Holy Bible, not Pastor Ed's teaching, on the veracity of the Holy Bible. Again, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2, had a lot to say about personal responsibility. Up here on the board, on that topic, in Jesus' eyes, as our great shepherd, Hebrews 13, 20, it's imperative that his sheep take responsibility for themselves. Luke 12, 42 to 28, oh, it should be 48, excuse me. Lest they remain stuck in the thicket indefinitely. Jesus is, from Jesus' perspective, the great shepherd, the one who has anointed this under-shepherd, from his perspective, he wants you to take responsibility for yourselves. It's that simple. Case in point, if you're one of these people who continues to, quote, date American style, and then acts shocked when things don't, you know, work out, maybe you ought to take a few steps back and see what the Spirit's trying to say here. Namely, that you 
are the one responsible for your own decisions. Even if the one seducing you, or past tense has seduced you, is really good or incredible at their craft. In other words, you're the, you're the one who got into the lion's cage. What happened from there on out, well, you can't blame the lion. I mean, there is a certain fault that God judges, but you're the one who made the decision to get into the cage, and God holds you responsible. So one of the biggest freedom principles, I believe, in all of this is taking personal responsibility for yourself. Stop pointing fingers at everyone else. Stop blaming someone else's flesh because you were seduced. My friend, you let yourself be seduced. Because the last time I checked, you're the one who chose to sit down on the end of the couch and then go, And then slowly, it happened. Right? If you submit to the word which says, flee from youthful lusts, not wrestle with them, flee, run! If you submit to the word which says, flee from youthful lusts, you won't find yourself in such predicaments in the first place. And lo and behold, you'd have no reason to try to blame someone else for your problems. Because guess what? You wouldn't have them. There'd be no problems to blame someone else for. Imagine that. Imagine if the Bible's like that cool about stuff like that. The Bible says, hey, I'm going to save you a whole lot of trouble. Right? Your creator says, I know you. I know, I know exactly what's going on in your heart. I'm going to save you a whole lot of trouble. You ready? Run! <laughs> and you go, no way. This one's really attractive. I know! Run! <laughs> right? The more attractive they are, the, the quicker you should turn around and run. Not the way it works, though, is it? So it's funny how it works. I mean, if you just followed the guidance in Scripture, you wouldn't have these problems to deal with. You get it? And God's trying to save you from all this headache. Sounds like righteous living to me. And just in case you think that Pastor Ed's being particularly pithy this morning, may I submit the one thing you can't object to. Go to Proverbs 1.1. Okay, you, don't, you, you, you want to take issue with me? First of all, I don't know what to tell you. Stand in line? I don't know. St hey, stand in line with the rest of the morons. Because that, that's who's in that line. If you take issue with me by now, you're an idiot. I'm serious. The only Scott, I'm serious. The only people in that line are morons. I'm serious. I'm nothing more than like a glorified waiter. I get the food in the back, and I bring it out as best I can with a smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, ma'am, that's what I do, right? 
I don't know. About as good as it gets. Can't blame me if you don't like the taste of the food. Proverbs 1.1. Proverbs Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youthful knowledge and discretion, or to the youth knowledge and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around, about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Run away! For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts, up, she lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you, because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel, and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when your distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. I could stop the lesson right there, but I won't. So much of what I've taught Scott's taught over the last couple of weeks really is encapsulated in Proverbs 1. That's all this has been about. This is for your own good. To our original point up here on the board, deserved suffering, if you continue to disregard the Word of God, this is what we just read in Proverbs 1, 
That was wisdom speaking. If you continue to disregard the word of God, refusing to submit to it in humility so that faith results, then you are setting yourself up for pain. This is self-inflicted in the same sense that if you walk into a lion's cage, you can expect to be bitten. Again, is that the lion's fault? And do not think that God is mocked. Galatians 6, 7 up here on the board. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Again, the underlying principle being developed here is this is just the nuttiest thing. It's goofy. In general, people don't want the truth. I mean, I'd be willing to bet. I don't bet necessarily uh, as a habit, but if I was going to bet, I bet you I'd win an awful lot of money if I said not everybody in here is going to follow the guy after five lessons on this stuff. I'd be willing to bet that at least one person in here is going to disregard what's been taught. Or at least one person that listens to these messages is going to go, nope, oh, I know that happened because someone already left. I know that happened. Why? Why? It doesn't say flee from the truth. It says flee from youthful lusts. But the only other option is, if you don't flee from the youthful lust, you're fleeing from truth. So you have a choice. You don't get both. Do you understand? You don't get both. I've been teaching that for a decade now, just about. You can't do both. You can't have one foot in the, in the pool and one foot out. You can't have one foot on this side of the fence and one on that side of the fence. That doesn't work. That's the dipsukos, the double-minded person. And James said, you ought not expect nothing. You ought to expect nothing from the Lord. Because you are playing games. So you're not going to get the peace, the happiness, contentment, all my little, all the blessings that I profoundly state in the truth, in the word of God, you, my friend, are not going to get because you are playing games. You are a dip sukos, a double-souled, a double-minded individual that wants to remain living in the flesh, but yet somehow cling to this. But there's a big difference between knowledge and faith. And it has everything to do with humility. So yes, I would be willing to bet that at least someone in here is going to go, nope, I don't care what you say. I don't want that truth. Well, truth shines in darkness, but darkness hates it. This is why many turn away, leave the faith, or ignore conviction. The point is, stop trying to escape the truth. You know what I mean? Just stop it. Nobody remembers Bob Newhart? Can you see that? Oh, you can't even see it. Remember that skit, Bob Newhart? Stop it. Nobody? Everybody's like, nah. Whatever. There's no accounting for taste. If you happen to disagree with me, then, you ready for this? This is what I say to you in the utmost integrity to the thing that I believe in the most because I believe in the power of the word. I don't believe in the power of Ed Collins. I believe in the power of the word. So, if you happen to disagree with me, 
then I encourage you to seek out wisdom's counsel on all of this. As I've taught you many times in the past, as is most certainly the case on this topic of dating, I don't want your wisdom to be my wisdom. I don't want you to make changes in your lifestyle because Pastor Ed suggested you do so. That is a mistake. It's good counsel, but if you do it because of me, it's not going to hold water. You have to have faith. You have to have faith to get through this thing. Some of you are like little addicts, addicted to things that are ungodly, frankly. And the only thing that can break that is not me. It's the Word. It's faith. So I don't want you to make changes in your lifestyle because I suggested you do so. That's a mistake. I am merely one of His chosen to agitate your fleshly lifestyles, to stir the pot, so to speak. That's part of my job. My prayer is for anyone struggling with this, and I'm not just talking about those single people out there. I'm talking to those of you with kids caught up in this insidiousness even. I'm talking about and talking to grandparents. I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about co-workers, etc., etc. This this plague affects all of us. I would argue as I mentioned this past week that this all of this is a function of sexual sinning which in America is at the very core of our economy, both literal and figurative. It's at the very core of our economy. So reflect on that for a moment. Imagine, imagine a world, you ready? Do the best you can. Just imagine a world where so-called dating woes didn't exist. In other words, there's no drama anymore because of some, this ungodliness called dating. Talk about peace. Imagine a world where only married people had or even contemplated sexual things. Talk about stability. Imagine a world where single people were preoccupied with Jesus Christ instead of romance. Talk about contentment. But we don't have that, do we? Why not? Because Satan's a genius. That's why. And you have a flesh. He's got so many people all wound up over relationship issues that you know what? They don't even pray to God for guidance. They're so spun up in this dating thing, in these so-called romantic problems. They don't even pray to God for guidance. And you know what that is? That's called a satanic plan. Satan loves that. Loves it when someone's so spun up and emotionally distraught that they can't even think straight when they're down on their knees if they even get to that position. You know what? Sexual sins are a splinter 
Praying seeks healing, but it must be done. Without prayer, fractures set in and widen over time. In other words, your relationship with God even, your fellowship suffers. The result is separation from God, which is literally the opposite of sanctification. Satan's smart. Some people hearing my voice won't go to him in prayer because as we've or as we begin class with this morning, they don't want the truth. They just don't want it. They'd rather complain and do as they please rather than what is pleasing to God. You know, the one who saved them from the very thing that's fracturing their relationship with him experientially, it's incredible. They cry stuff like, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. I want a relationship too. What does that even mean? Have you ever thought about that term fair? What do you mean it's not fair? And who gets to decide what's fair? Fair, I just wrote a blog on this. Yes. I do write them. I just wrote a blog on this. Where, where are you assigning value in your life? Because that's when you can start having a, a reasonable conversation about fair. Where are you assigning value in your life? Because then you can start talking about what's fair. Because fair implies some kind of an exchange or for something. So people say, this isn't fair. I want a relationship too. All I can say is remember that God's fairness is not man's. No matter how much man thinks he's able to define it. So you get into these adolescent strategies, right? Well, I don't care what you say, Mr. Ball guy. I can define fairness. And right now, it's not feeling so fair. I want a boyfriend or I want a girlfriend. Matter of fact, I want the, I want the drummer because he's really cute. And you see how he flips his drumsticks? So hot. Long girlish hair. So hot. And his skinny jeans. He's looking good. And he's got a sleeve tattoo. Oh! A sleeve tattoo for real? What a sexy beast. You're an idiot. If that's your husband, that's cool. But if it's not, as Bob Hart, Newhart would say, stop it. What do you mean, what's fair? Are you kidding me? Was it fair that Jesus Christ had to die for your sins? Was that fair? You want to talk about fair? Let's go right back to the cross. How about that fairness? How about the fact that you're spitting all over him, you vile creature? How about that for fair? Is it fair that you're going like this? Nope. I don't want it. Is that fair? Say it. No. no, it's not fair. Why are some of you quiet? Tick, talk, tick. Seriously, we want to talk about fairness? Are we joking? Who gets to define what's fair? It's the same person who owns the weights and balances and the scales. You know who that is? That's the Lord, the same one who saved you. 
The same one who became a man and died on a cross. You want to talk about fair. Shut up. Fair. That's nothing more than a pathetic, adolescent, spoiled brat little strategy. Yeah, I know. I get kind of heated. Why? Because it's grotesque. It's awfully grotesque. The problem with this, quote, fairness argument is that it is wholly based on human viewpoint. Who are you, O man? Only an arrogant human has the audacity to say that they can choose a better mate for themselves than God can. Only an arrogant person attempts to stuff this abomination called dating into the holy category of courting. And just by the way, I mean, we all kind of had a chuckle on this. I think it was on Thursday. The vast majority of daters, let's face it, have zero interest in marriage, at least not to the one they are dating, which really does nothing more than prove their own selfishness. Because what you're saying is you would like to use up somebody else's virtue to satisfy your own fleshly lusts. You have zero concern whatsoever about marriage or the institution of marriage or the way God designed the relationship to be between man and woman. So what you're really saying is I'm so selfish, I just as soon chew you up and then spit you out at the end because I don't have any plans of marrying you. I just think you're a sexy beast right now. And when you get old, maybe like, you know, sometimes when you get old and haggard and things start sagging, I'll just throw you out and get a new one. Because even if I marry you, I have no regard for marriage either. I'll just divorce you and get another one. And I'll do that seven times over. Do you see what's going on? Satan, I know this. some of you are like, oh, God, slow down, buddy. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. The only reason this is offensive whatsoever is because it exists. Because evil exists in this world. Evil exists in you. That's the only reason we're even having this lesson. If, if you guys weren't so perverted, I could teach a different lesson. Jesus loves you. Right? That's all I could do is come to class and we could, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya. Right? But no, not you guys. Oh, no. Selfishness, you ready? Selfishness is never rewarded with blessings from heaven. In fact, it incurs discipline. Some of you know, now this is going to get really gross, and I'm sorry old people that might get offended. Some of you know from first-hand experience having contracted a sexually transmitted disease that discipline often comes in lifelong packages. He said, okay, you want to disregard me? Here's a nice disease for you that you can live with for the rest of your life. Giddy up. Some of you are like, oh, God, where's this going? It's Sunday morning. Are sexually transmitted diseases real or not? Do you want to talk shop here or not? Or do you just want to do this thing? Well, cut it out then. Some of you know from first-hand experience, because you live with it, that some forms of discipline are lifelong. Guess that didn't work out. 
Although not every form of discipline leaves physical scars, they often leave much deeper emotional scars, spiritual ones even. The puzzling thing is that most people endure the pain of being gouged by their own unholy relationships. And that's just the beginning, the beginning of discipline. When a person chooses a sinful lifestyle, they immediately take on the daily pressure of living outside the will of God. This robs them of their peace and contentment, for an unsettled conscience serves as an agitator. If they aren't agitated, they may have a bigger problem. And I taught close to a year and a half on that. If you don't have a good conscience, if you haven't been changed, if you're not a new creature, if you haven't been given these things, you might not be agitated at all. You might be like, doesn't bother me any. Well, you might have a bigger problem, my friend. You might have a bigger problem, and it has everything to do with your eternal life. That's between you and the Lord. You see, as the Spirit taught us recently, God deals with unbelievers differently than his own children even, which means that he will discipline his own in ways that he won't discipline those still lost. The point is, the simple fact is that a saved person has been given additional faculties. You've been made new, right? To an unbeliever, spiritually appraised things, they can't make sense. So says Scripture. But if you're a believer, you can make sense. And once you learn lessons like these and then you persist, you're going to be wrestling with a thing called your conscience. And God's going to use that as a lever. And God the Holy Spirit's going to pick at you through your conscience. And he's not going to stop until that conscience maybe gets seared, as the Bible would say, and God says, okay, have it your way. Maybe he takes you out. If you're not saved, maybe you go to hell. But those are your options. But a saved person has been given additional faculties that an unsaved person doesn't have, which means that God is able to inflict different, stronger discipline. He's going to affect your conscience even. And to whom much is given, much is what? Required. So may I submit the following wisdom up here on the board. The beginning of wisdom. Do not make the mistake of comparing your personal relationships with those the world keeps. Why? Because they're disjoint. God holds his children to a different standard. Psalm, uh, it's actually 111.10. Psalm 111.10. Go there. Go to Psalm 111.10. Do not make the mistake of comparing your personal relationship with those the world keeps. Because most of you still have a, a television, right? With uh, 6,000 channels coming in from the cable, right? Through the cable box, right? And you just flick through it, and it's all ungodly relationships. Oh, baby, right? MTV is grotesque. I don't know. You might, you might as well just call that porn. But everybody seems to be having a relationship. And then there's you, who maybe God says, you know what? I don't know, maybe you're going to be like, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was Isaac. I think Isaac was 40. Think about that. 40. Some of you are like, ha, by the time I was 40, ooh. (laughs) 
Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. You what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Who's the one who's truly behind these messages? The Lord, our great shepherd. I'm just a way to remember. I'm just doing his will. He says, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. In other words, if you still refuse, what you're really saying is, I don't get it yet. I don't have the faith. Maybe you don't have the faith because you're not humble. But if you want wisdom on that subject, on something as heinous as American dating, then you have to fear the Lord. That means be humble. And the ones who have a good understanding of those who do his commandments. So says Scripture. So just reflecting for a moment, remember that God's intention is to sanctify you experientially after salvation. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's intention is to sanctify you experientially after salvation. That means set you apart for His purposes. That's what sanctification really means. Well, what does 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 say about that? Again, for, check this out. You ready? For this is the will of God. Didn't I just say this? Chris, I said this, right? Yeah, sanctification, right? Yeah, that's what I thought I said. But this is, see, it's not Pastor Ed. Oh, imagine that. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Yeah, that's what he wants for you. That is, you ready? Then he says, don't do this stuff, okay? That is, that you what? Abstain! Anybody know what that is? Anybody not know what that is? Anybody have a problem with Scrabble? <laughs> Although you don't need to know definition. Anyways. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain. Run away. Abstain. And sexual immorality doesn't just mean sexual intercourse that makes babies. Sexual immorality starts right here. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, you're going to be like one of those? One of the unbelievers? Up here on the board, your sanctification, such is the very will of God. Now remember, you are not called to the same standard if you're saved. This is what he's developing. He's saying, stop looking over the fence to the unbelievers and say, well, they look happy. Look at them. They're both unbelievers and they look happy. And you know what Solomon said? Let them have it. That's as good as it's ever going to get. That's it. Enjoy each other because you're going to hell. And this life is a drop in the bucket. So stop looking at them. They're not a good, they're not, a, they're not your model. Hollywood's not your model for romance. So stop turning on the TV and go, but I want to be like, you know, Brangelina. What happened to them? <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Anyways, how I even know that is disgusting to me. Brangelina, for real? You know what I'm saying? I was probably at like Walmart. I'm looking on like the Inquirer. Brangelina. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Brangelina. What the hell is this? Right? Now it's in my head. You see how it works? He got to me. He got to me. 
You see how it works? It's horrible. Your sanctification, such as the very will of God. So stop looking at other, stop looking at worldly relationships and modeling and expecting that's your, that's your standard, in other words. It's not your standard at all. The Bible immediately couples this with the thought that you abstain from sexual immorality, revealing the contrariness of sexual sins, not just sexual intercourse that leads to conception. What we've seen and learned throughout this series is something fundamentally opposed to the society we live in. That is, as Holy Scripture states, go to Hebrews 13.4. Now here's where we get to something quite interesting. Because you might say, well, okay, God doesn't want me to have sex outside. It seems to be damaging. Ah, oh, no, no, no. There's a much bigger issue here. Something that was instituted in the garden. See, what Satan has done, he's done a masterful job of separating two primary, or I should even call them primal or primitive concepts, marriage and sex. He's done this. And a lot has happened. So whenever we talk about sexual immorality, we have to immediately think. It's not just, it's against the institution of marriage itself. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held, how? In honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I want you to focus on that first line. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. You might say, well, what the heck does two teenagers on a couch have to do with marriage? Everything. Everything, because you're destroying each other's virtues. And by the time one or both of you gets into a marriage, they've got baggage that shouldn't be there. You've shared yourself with some other person. That's not holy. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now you've got confused individuals. Oh, man, I married this one. This one doesn't even kiss as good as that other one. And I didn't marry that one. I should have married the good kisser. What? Say, what? Yeah. How would you even know any better if you were chaste, if you were virtuous? How would you ever know about this other person? You wouldn't. And guess what you wouldn't have? Any awful, ungodly thoughts about the one you're actually married to. Imagine that. Oh, wait a minute. That's how it works. Yeah, that's how it works. So when you're out there seducing somebody and destroying something, you're actually destroying the sanctity of marriage, not just for yourself, but for them too. Oh, yay. We get a round of applause. Yay. That's a really good thing to think about, isn't it? But that's how selfish. Remember selfish? That's how selfish people are. I don't care about their future husband or their future wife. What do I care? I got here and now, baby. Let's go. Do you think God's stupid? That's not holding marriage in honor. That's dishonoring the institution of marriage. Look, forget it. When I was teaching this verse on Thursday night, it occurred to me up here on the board, and someone else emailed me and said this occurred to them as well. 
which was interesting. must have been the Spirit saying, make that point. Dishonoring marriage. The problem isn't that, or isn't just the physical act of adulterating the marriage bed. In fact, the greater problem, as is the case with any sin, is that people no longer see fit to honor marriage. That's the problem. People no longer see fit. Now, remember I said this is what's happened. Satan has divorced marriage from sex. Oh, they're not the same. Sex before marriage, totally okay. Matter of fact, you should try before you buy attitude. You should date American style. No, 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 no. That was never, ever in the Lord's mind when he instituted marriage and sex. As far as the Lord is concerned, those two things are this way. Do you understand? Just like this. You ready? Just like that. But Satan's done this. And what do you think he's done to the institution of marriage? What do you think he's done to the institution of marriage? He's pretty much destroyed it in our country. And every time one of you is off gallivanting around dating, you're adding to it. You're dishonoring not only your own, but someone else's marriage. Maybe in the future. Oh, man, that's what it is? Yeah, that's what it is. Satan's not stupid. Satan's like, nah, nah, got you. No way. He has a strategy, not just tactics. The tactics is to get you to sin. The strategy is much bigger. Destroy family. Destroy marriage. Make a mockery of marriage. If you don't like that one, throw them out, get another one. If you don't like that one, throw them out, get another one. People have made a mockery of marriage, and then the kids come up behind them and go, well, mom and dad or grandma or grandfather, they had 42 different marriages, so what, well, I don't give a crap about marriage. I'll have sex. I'll get married. I don't give a crap. What happened to this right here? Let no man separate what God has formed. What about two become one flesh? What about all that stuff? Oh, no. Not in America. Get with it. It's 2017, Pastor Ed, you bald freak. Right? Get with the times. What do you mean? I am with the times. The times haven't changed. Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, and forever. His heart, he's, he hasn't changed on any of this. There's a lot of movement in here right now. Is it either getting late or is it hot? No? People get antsy? It's too much? I was talking about sex. I don't know. It's too much. And I have all these failures in my own life and I'm so self-absorbed. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. I'm no prize. Not many wise, not many noble. Hey, easy back there. <laughs> Sinner. You know, judgment's worse, I'm just saying. <laughs> you no, know, but this is what the Spirit's saying. He's saying all of this, these American dating is a complete attack on the institution of marriage. And as the marriage goes, so goes the family. So it's not just now two dysfunctional people that got together with all this baggage. Now they have kids and the kids suffer because the parents are dysfunctional. Hmm. Remember that old commercial about pot? Son! 
phone that's in your room. Where'd you learn how to do that? I learned it from you, Dad, okay? I learned it from you. Remember that? Nobody? Anybody? No? You don't think this goes on? I mean, what if, anyways, put two and two together. Come on. We have, some of you have to learn to break the chain. Say, the buck stops with me. My parents are idiots. My grandparents are idiots. My, I was an idiot. The buck's stopping now. The buck's stopping here. I'm going to take personal responsibility for myself. I can't change yesterday. I confess it. Yep, I was a sinner. I'm an idiot. But you know what? I'm here and now. I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. Amen? God can still use me, right? So then stop. Stop dishonoring marriage. Stop thinking that this garbage is okay because it's not. It really is not okay. And there's a much bigger thing going on than just you and your little pathetic life and your little egocentric little world that just says, I don't care, I'm just going to ruin people. I'm going to reach across the aisle and annihilate your virtue. And people do it to weaker individuals, and that's the one I feel like, because mm, it's predatory. See somebody that's in a weak moment and you take advantage of them? Shame on you. To dishonor something is to disrespect it. To dishonor something is to disrespect it. The most disrespectful creature ever created is the same one that promotes such things even to this day. Satan's counterfeit marriage. We might consider American dating as Satan's counterfeit to godly marriage. The prior satisfies the lust of the flesh while disregarding the sovereign's divine will for marriage and family. So yes, yes, sexual sins, American dating, these are assaults, not, you know, a little bit abrasive. These are full-on assaults on the institution of marriage. The Spirit made one final point on Thursday worth reiterating here. While the scripture we're about to note covers the general pr uh, principle of relationships, given that dating is more concentrated or a more concentrated version of interpersonal relationships, the principle still applies even more so. Go to 2 Corinthians 6.14. 2 Corinthians 6.14. This is the one, even from a practical perspective, blows my mind. I don't know what, I don't know what the heck. I don't even know what to think sometimes. What does a believer do with an unbeliever anyways, romantically? What do you guys even talk about? Well, we don't even talk. Oh, I get it. Oh, now I get it. So it has not, to, you, just, you just have lustful, lust of the flesh and you want them satisfied, so you use each other. Is that fair to say? You just basically use each other like wild animals do. Pretty much. All right, at least you're honest. I mean, it's ungodly given what I just taught you, but at least you're honest. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Um, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship even has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You tell me. Other than the, the lust patterns, that both of you are coming to this otherwise contractual agreement, I guess. You want to go out? Okay, let's go out. 
Okay, so there's agreement. Let's use each other. And I'll be okay with you using me if you're okay with me using you. Okay. That's what you're doing. And oh, by the way, up here on the board, that's part of Satan's counterfeit marriage. That don't work. It's not meant to work. It's not, it doesn't bring glory to God. Satan's counterfeit marriage, Satan entices believers with so-called attractive unbelievers. While believers ought to flee from this, they often fall prey to their lusts regardless of biblical warnings, such as 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. I've actually heard people say to my face, but, you know, uh, there's no good men. Have you looked at our church? Sorry, guys. Have you looked at the church? There's no good men in here. So I have to go outside the church to find what I want. Or there's no good women in the church. Or even, and I don't mean a church like this. Everybody's like, God, it's, it's kind of small. You know, you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> this was a broader statement. Do you understand? It was like someone saying, look, have you seen Christian men? Most of them, let's face it, are idiots. I hate to say it that way. I'm about women, so don't get off so easy, ladies, right? So, so you say to yourself, but have you seen them? I mean, they're, you know, they're, wah, wah, wah. some of them are phonies. That doesn't help. Other ones are weird. I don't know. Have you seen our church? <laughs> right? And you say, well, what's that got to do with anything? Honest to goodness, what in the world does that statement have to do with anything? Honest to goodness, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> it's unbelievable the way people are. Oh, there's slim pickings in the faith. Oh, so you go outside the faith? What are we doing? Seriously, what are we doing? Ay, ay, ay. Just going to go out on a limb, you ready? If you go to a bar pick up your spouse, you might be shopping in the wrong area of your life. I'm not saying it can't happen, but do you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying. But they're so much more exciting. They got the sleeve, you know? So you don't think Satan knows that? You don't think you're easy prey? You don't think it's almost like a joke to him? He's like, watch this. Everybody see C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters? Hey, watch this, Wormwood. Watch this one. Send this one in. Oh, real. Ooh, ooh. That's the girl. Best I could do. Theoretically, it's going to be easier for Satan to use an unbeliever as an agent in dishonoring marriage with sexual sins. So beware. Here's some additional perspective for you up here on the board. Marriage and sex, I alluded to this earlier. The concepts of marriage and sex should be so, you ready? Now just please, chew this up, digest it. The concepts of marriage and sex should be so tightly knit in your soul that you can't think of one without the other. If marriage were a blueprint, sex would be the innermost private room in the finished home. Again, 
The concepts of marriage and sex should be so tightly knit in your soul that you can't think of one without the other. If marriage were a blueprint, sex would be the innermost private room in the finished home. Satan says, to hell with God's blueprints. Let anyone defile the inner sanctums of God's holy temple. And just reflecting, I've got to pick a spot to close. It's funny, whenever, you know, whenever the news reports that a church is defiled by vandalism or theft, Christians are up in arms, right? I mean, it's like a big deal. People, you know, the Christians come out of the woodwork. Oh, my word, a church was defiled. It was robbed, you know. It was stolen from. And all the Christians come out and, like, you know, with pitchforks and torches. Yet, are you ready? Yet, these same Christians say nothing about the vast majority of holy temples, you know, human bodies, that are being defiled daily, regularly, by immorality. They say nothing. They think more of this temple than this one. These people are hypocrites of the worst kind, all about external things, but ignorant or ignoring the innermost holiness that God seeks. One more scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians 6.13, then I've got to close. We're going to get to communion service. I'll have to be brief because we're running a little late. 1 Corinthians 6.13. It's amazing. All the Spirit's saying is it's amazing that people are upset when a a temple, a chapel, a church, a so-called holy temple is defiled, but every single day themselves and others are defiling the holier temple that is them, their own body, with immorality. And nobody says anything. Nobody's saying anything except guys like me who are honest, who are willing to step out and say, you know what? This is garbage. 1 Corinthians 6.13, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Your body, my friends, is a holy temple. Your body is a holy temple. Something where holiness ought to be manifest. Your body is a holy temple. Just think about that. And think about the kinds of sins we do to our own bodies. And I'm not even talking about just sex. I'm talking about the way we abuse them physically even. With all kinds of things. Things we ingest. Your body is a holy temple. Something where holiness ought to be manifest up here on the board Romans 12 1 therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual 
service of worship. So I guess I'll end this way. Do you really think that Paul was writing about presenting your bodies to someone of the opposite sex that isn't your spouse as a meal for their sexual appetites? Do you really think that what you're thinking and doing in this thing called American dating is bringing glory to God? Do you really think that's presenting your, this holy temple that you've been given? Do you really think that's presenting it as a living and holy sacrifice that's acceptable to God? That's actually a form of your worship? How are you worshiping God that way? How could you possibly twist enough scripture to say that that is somehow a spiritual service of worship? You are not worshiping God in that, in that time, in your lifestyle, in your sinning. You are worshiping the flesh. Amen? Happy Sunday. All right, let's put some music on. We'll get the uh, elements out. And we'll... Let's worship the Lord as a spiritual form of worship by celebrating all that He's done. Amen? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time, for this space, for this lovely congregation to be given this opportunity to gather together, to be encouraged by each other's faith. We know we're not perfected yet, Father. We know we're not wholly sanctified yet, Father, at least not experientially. But we are so very grateful for this opportunity to fellowship with you, to break bread in a way that matters most, to celebrate the great hope we've been given, this living hope even, of eternal life spent with you. Father, thank you for blessing us with difficult lessons, especially the ones that challenge our social norms, ones that have and run counter to the world system. Father, thank you for pointing these things out to us so that we might be set free even to a greater degree. We pray for those not able to be with us this morning. We pray for their continued health, especially their spiritual health, but also their physical and emotional health. We pray that they know and understand that we love them, that know we wish they were here with us, that we understand your will. We pray also for divine appointments, Father, that as we take the things we've learned and continue to see light through darkness, to continue to see it all as truth, that we're able to relate to those, even though they're lost, to the point where we're able to evangelize them. Thank you for that opportunity, and thank you for your patience in doing so. We do just ask for traveling mercies as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs us so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.